A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is different than the regular episodes we have on this podcast. Very different kind of uh, podcast this time. It's a review review about the story of the United States and the Holocaust as is um, is as explained through the recent Ken Burns documentary a three-part documentary two hours each so it's six hours of documentary um, uh, uh, just put out and I just wanted to give an overview of the topic and, and review the you know the story as it's seen through there and 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 uh, a little bit of my uh, my uh, take on it. Um, so I, the reason I I thought to do something different this time is because this thing just came out, this Ken Burns documentary, U.S. and the Holocaust, and I've been getting uh, tons of emails from many many listeners uh, about it. It seems like everyone in the world saw it already, and I'm like the last one to to have gone to see it, to be able to see it. I finally got around to it. It took me a while. I mean, it's six hours long, so I it took from when I started till I finished. took a couple of weeks also. Um, so a lot of people asked my opinion about it, um, and I decided if so many people are asking, then I might as well do an episode about it. So that's the goal here. And Ken Burns in general, if you like the documentary, historical documentary genre, he's probably the best one out there in general. So if you like documentaries, like historical documentaries, then you probably like Ken Burns. They're usually very long. And if you have the patience to go through the whole thing, then they're excellent. He's, you know, in this series that he made about the U.S. and the Holocaust kind of follows his standard pattern. You can see that it's his style, what he did about Vietnam and World War II, and he did baseball and jazz and many, many others. Um, and so it's, it's a unique, uniquely his uh, project and his style and very well done artistically and using the, the footage and the text and the and the interviews, all that that mix that's, that, that he's known for, and it's done uh, impressively well here. So that's as far as the style is concerned. However, I want to talk about the content, the history. That's what concerns me more than the, 
than the artistic, uh, um, you know, the aesthetic quality of it, which is obviously important as well. Um, the theme of the series that he's that he was trying to bring out, and it's the one that caught me by most by surprise, and definitely was its biggest asset and success is the fact that it's the United States and the Holocaust. In other words, we used when we used to when we're used to bringing up this topic, we would you know phrase it as um, rescue attempts from the United States and the Holocaust. Um, what the United States could have and should have done during the Holocaust, Roosevelt and the Holocaust, the State Department and the Holocaust, the American Jewish community and the Holocaust, what they did, what they didn't do, what they should have done, what they could have done, um, but they didn't do. In other words, all those is what the standard uh, um, narrative is, but this is not what this series is about. It's rather, it's viewing the Holocaust in its entirety from an American perspective um, and covering all aspects of that. It's a very fresh, a very important, and a very complete perspective um, that, 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 I, that I've never seen before, not in a book, not in a documentary, not anywhere else. Um, so that, that I found was to be the best, the best part of it, is that it's telling the story of the Holocaust. In fact, I would say more than 50% of the six hours, maybe even the majority of it, is really telling the story of the Holocaust itself. It's not even talking about the United States, it's talking about the Holocaust in Europe. So what makes it American? It's because it's constantly from the American perspective. What is being reported in the United States newspapers, what people know, what Jews know in the United States from relatives of theirs who are there, during the 1930s, and even during the Holocaust itself. And it, in other words, the whole thing is, is developing a story, a narrative of the Holocaust, of the actual Nazi rise to power, the Nazi uh, um, laws against Jews in Germany in the 1930s, the Nazi invasion of Europe and occupation of Poland, the ghettos, and then eventually the final solution itself, all from the perspective of the United States of America. Um, the general, the, you know, the general society as well. It's not uniquely uh, Jewish America. It's it's the it's the general society in America uh, primarily. So therefore, it's a complete story. And rescue attempts, and Roosevelt, and the American government, and the State Department, and the American Jewish community, and what they should have done, what they could have done, and what they didn't do, and what they did do is definitely an element of the story. It's a component of the story, but it's not the entire story. It's United States and the Holocaust. That was a very fresh perspective that I found the most compelling part of this documentary, and I found it very, very well done. Um, and, I, and, and it goes chronologically, and, and I'll just go over a few points that he goes through. First of all, I found it very well done in, uh, at the outset, uh, an overview of immigration to the United States, specifically of Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe to the United States during the Great Immigration, and how and when it stopped, and what was the United States policy of why it stopped, the Johnson-Reed Act in 1924 that brought an end to immigration that I've discussed many times on this podcast, and it, it talks about immigration because that is, that's going to serve as a background, because the primary role that the United States potentially could have played in the Holocaust, or what it played by not having, was immigration. And the United States, very little that it could have done to actually have 
uh, prevented the Holocaust, probably nothing, um, but it could have uh, allowed more immigration, and it didn't. And that, that is a major theme of the story. Um, and, and, and it talks about immigration to the United States in general, and how it, when it stopped, and therefore when it stopped, and then a few years later, Hitler rises to power in Germany, and there are German Jews who are trying to get out, and the United States has these strict immigration quotas that were put in place um, several years earlier, that becomes, that becomes a story of the United States and the Holocaust because then there's this struggle for, for immigration. There are these German Jews trying to get out. There's also later on Eastern European Jews trying to get out. There are the relatives of those Jews who live in America, who came during the Great Immigration earlier, before their relatives were unable to get out, and they're trying to help them, and they're signing affidavits, and they're lobbying officials, and they're, and they're corresponding with their relatives and sending them money, and there's this struggle of how to get in. So the immigration story is already serves as a backdrop to the whole story. Another perspective that I found fascinating that is usually overlooked, but I have... I have discussed it myself in the past, and I've seen it in museums, I've seen it in books, it is brought up, but it's usually overlooked, is how the eugenics movement is, is, is uh, popular in the United States during the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, how um, the idea that, that there are certain parts, like a social Darwinism, as it were, of, of uh, you know, the survival of the fittest and certain parts of the population are less fit and less, um, you know, they should be sterilized, they should be made infertile, they should be institutionalized and forced sterilization. That is legal in the United States. That is done in America, in most states, if not all, at the time. And, and, and then there's the Jim Crow laws, other racist uh, United States policies internally in, 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 the, in America to its own citizens, um, separate but equal, Plessy versus Ferguson, um, and, and the idea of segregation. And, and that all, of course, exists, and that's a component of American history. What the documentary brings out, and I've seen before, and I'm happy they brought about, is how this environment serves as an inspiration for Hitler, the Nazi party, and Nazi ideology. Uh, it's an important subject because it's usually overlooked. The fact that U.S. Race, racist policies, Jim Crow laws, eugenics, eugenics movement, eugenicist movement, however you pronounce it, um, serves as an inspiration for Hitler and the Nazi party is a fascinating subject. He looks to America as like, wow, they're doing it right there. They're doing eugenics. The government is intervening in forced sterilization for um, unproductive uh, um, uh, segments of the population. They're segregating segments of the population based on race. Therefore, the Nazi party can do the same thing for whoever the Nazi party decides is not, part, not, not, not an important integral part of the Aryan race. So that's, that's a good story as well, which is, um, which is brought out in this uh, documentary. Another story that, that comes up um, is anti-Semitism that exists in the United States. And anti-Semitism spills over into anti-immigration, xenophobia, um, isolationism. Um, this, people like Henry Ford, Father Coughlin, Charles Lindbergh, the American Firster Movement, um, and how the anti-immigration, the American isolation, not being want to be concerned with the affairs in Europe, 
leads to anti-immigration. We don't want foreigners. It's the Great Depression. We don't want them taking our jobs. We don't want these people coming in. And it, and it crosses over. It overlaps with anti-Semitism because it's German Jewish refugees and eventually other Jewish refugees who are the ones that are undesirable elements and they become part of the anti-immigration. And, and the idea is even if the U.S. joins the war, it's joining the war to to save Jews. So the American First Movement, the isolationist movement, is essentially anti-Semitic because they don't want to get involved in European affairs because it would just be to to help Jews. Um, and uh, and what's even more ironic is that Roosevelt himself, who wants to join the war on England's side, is accused of being pro-Jewish. Um, so, so that would be a surprise to many Jews uh, uh, today. Anyway, the Jews then definitely support, were supportive of Roosevelt across the spectrum um, that, uh, that, that, that Roosevelt was accused of such. Um, so that's, that's a story as well. Um, there, there, it, it focuses through interviews and through documentation also on Jewish American immigrants and their concern for their relatives back in Europe. And again, uh, sometimes it's overlooked because most American Jews were recent immigrants, recent as in the last 50, 60 years. So, so they, they, right in the 1930s, so they, the Great Immigration essentially started in the 1880s. So almost all American Jews had come to the country within the last half a century, last half a century or so. And therefore, almost all of them have a significant number of relatives, friends, relatives back home. Some of them, many of them are part of Landsmannschaft from their towns or regions of origin. Many of them maintain a correspondence. Many of them tame, maintain financial support. Many of them have visited. Many of them have pictures of their family back home. There's a strong connection. And as things get worse in Europe, there's this um, first concern, attempting to help them, um, trying to get them out. And then later on, there's this guilt that we didn't do enough. And, and, and then as soon as they find out what happened to them. And that's a Jewish American story. And that, again, is an, an, a story of the U.S. and the Holocaust, which is um, a, a story to bring out about how there's this, uh, again, on the micro level, talking about individual American Jews. I'm not talking right now about um, American Jewish organizations and what they tried to do, because that's a story as well. I'm talking about individual Jews, individual families, um, and, their, and their individual relatives back home. And this becomes part of the story of American Jewish life. Part of the history of American Jewish life is what they tried to do for their relatives and were ultimately, for the most part, in most cases, unfortunately, unsuccessful. And, and, uh, and, then, and then what happens because of that? There's this guilt, there's this concern, there's this, you know, what, what, what we could have done more. And then if we get back to the macro level, to what the, in the American government itself, the Roosevelt administration, the State Department, Congress, the American people, um, in, 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 in the 1930s, as they're hearing more and more reports of, of uh, Hitler's rise and power in the Nazi party in Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, throughout the 1930s, so there's a refugee crisis, and the question is, should the U.S. lift its quotas or not? And, he, and, the, and the documentary discusses the Evian Conference in southern France in July 1938. 
So one important point is that the evening conference takes place before Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht is the same year, 1938, but it's in November. I always, one of the what-ifs I always wonder about is, had the conference on refugees, which was attended by, I think, uh, 32 countries, if I'm not mistaken, um, at this conference, had representatives there to discuss the refugee crisis and which countries would take them in. And aside from the Dominican Republic, which agreed to take uh, Jewish refugees to their credit, and they took several thousand, I think four or five thousand um, is the number, but no other country at the conference agreed to take any refugees. I always speculate, a what if of history, had the evening conference taken place after Kristallnacht, which shocked the world, which shocked the American people, which shocked uh, everyone, um, would the conference have resolved things differently? Would more ref Jewish refugees have been allowed in? There's a lot of reason to speculate that it would not have made a difference, and it's still the countries of the world would not have allowed Jewish refugees in, but obviously that's merely speculative because it happened before. But in any event, the Evening Conference the Roosevelt's, Roosevelt, uh, the, the, his representative there, um, did not, uh, not even attempt to take in refugees because the American, uh, the American government was not going to change its position on quotas. Now, what's interesting is that the, the documentary discusses four, I think, four different components of this, um, attitude towards Jewish refugees. There's Roosevelt himself, there's the United States Congress, which creates the quota system and, and keeps it in place, there's the State Department, and then there's the American people. And we usually, you know, bunch them all into one. It's, the, it's, it's America, right? But he separates them, which is interesting to see because at times, Roosevelt actually comes out looking in better light, better light. Eleanor Roosevelt, or even Roosevelt, even the president, um, because the the uh, the, um, the the Congress was very isolationist at the time. The American people were very isolationist. The State Department usually comes out looking the worst. They were sometimes, very often, outright anti-Semitic. The documentary is extremely critical of Breckenridge Long. The, uh, the Undersecretary of State, who did everything in his power to prevent immigrants within the quota, even the refugees who got into the quota, to, to make bureaucratic hurdles and extra paperwork to file and all kinds of uh, ways to stop it completely. He actually explicitly stated, Long explicitly stated that his goal was to prevent any immigrants from arriving. Uh, he didn't want anyone coming in, even within the quota. So it's very critical of the State Department, um, and it's critical of the American people for being isolationists, for the United States Congress, who wouldn't even consider uh, changing the status quo as far as the immigration quotas are concerned, which only Congress could change. And it was less critical of, of Roosevelt, which surprised me. I wasn't aware, and it's something I would like to look into more, is that at least in the 1930s, when it comes to during the war years, it's a bit different. So you can't conflate and confuse the two. Different time periods are obviously different things. 
But uh, it seems that during the 1930s, Roosevelt was more open to the idea of changing the quotas and allowing refugees in, specifically even Jewish refugees in. And it was um, more, it was Congress, the American people, and especially the State Department who was not interested, at least at this point. Then, the, 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 then, it, then of course, Kristallnacht is discussed. And here was something else I didn't know, that the United States was the only country in the world that pulled its ambassador from Germany in protest of Kristallnacht. Uh, Kristallnacht shocked the American people. The newspapers reported on it heavily. But, of course, that didn't help, and also it didn't change U.S. policy. And there we come to this tragic story of the St. Louis, the boat that was supposed to bring 900 and, 900 and something, 900-plus 900 uh, German-Jewish refugees to German and Austrian-Jewish refugees. Austria is, of course, in the Nazi Reich at this point, um, and, uh, and it's supposed to go to Cuba. And there's a misunderstanding, and not only misunderstanding, it was corrupt Cuban officials who fooled the German-Jewish refugees in Germany. And they come to Cuba, and they're not allowed to disembark. And the captain of the St. Louis is actually a German captain, but he's not a Nazi. He, he kind of has like this compassion to the German-Jewish refugees. He does not want to bring them back to Hamburg in Germany. So he brings the, 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 his boat, his ship, off the coast of Florida. And U.S. Coast Guard ships prevent them from entering U.S. territorial waters. There's no chance of them disembarking. And it becomes a whole international controversy. And they start to go back to, to, um, to Europe. And in a very um, tragic ending to the story. But in a certain way, a beautiful Jewish ending to the story. Jewish American organizations act up. It's the joint and highest and, 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 and American Jewish money and philanthropy that uh, enables a lobbying campaign that by the time they get back to Europe, they do not have to do, go back to Germany itself. They are divided between four countries, um, uh, France, uh, uh, England, Belgium, and I think Holland was the fourth one. And that's where they all end up. Many of them, unfortunately, get killed by the Nazis, uh, despite the fact that they weren't returned to Germany because the Nazi occupation of Belgium and Holland and France uh, ensues later on in the war. So some of them get caught up with the Nazis again later. But at least some of them, I think even the majority of them, were saved because of this, um, this, uh, this project that the joint was able to to, to do while the, while the St. Louis made its way back across the Atlantic. There are German, German Jews who arrive in the United States, and then they try to save their own relatives. And then what, what the documentary does well is many interviews with German Jews, with Austrian Jews. Later on, as the war begins, it's also with Polish Jews and, and uh, survivors. Holocaust survivors are telling their own story, which is always a powerful message, and it's great to hear from survivors themselves and, and refugees. And, 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 and you know, it's heartbreaking at times. You see this story of, of a German Jew who was able to get there himself, he had a relative sponsor him, but that relative was unable to sponsor the rest of his family because he couldn't show enough financial assets. So he goes as a teenager himself, and he's one mission in mind is to get his family out. And he finally is able to find a compassionate uh, sponsor for his family to sign the affidavit, and they go to a a uh, a, a lawyer to sign the papers, and it's. The, the the survivor the the German Jewish refugee who's who's now an old man but he was a 
teenager, 15, 16-year-old kid at the time, he describes, he emphasizes the point that it was a Jewish lawyer, a Jewish-American lawyer, and uh, he asks the sponsor uh, what he does for a living, and he says, I'm a professional gambler. So he says, well, the law is that you have to be a reputable person and in a reputable business, and I can't have you be the sponsor of this person. And this kid starts to cry. He says, this is the only chance I have to get my family out. And this lawyer is not willing to bend the law, and he's not willing to have them sign the papers if the sponsor is not in a reputable business. So so his family gets killed. This fellow's parents and uh, and siblings all are wiped out by the Nazis eventually. And uh, they, they interview him throughout the documentary, and he describes how he joins the U.S. military and eventually you know, is in Normandy with, with the American army, and, and since he knows German, so he's used as a translator to interrogate Nazis, so he has this, like, coming full circle himself. And these uh, interviews with survivors add a lot of color to the story as well, naturally, so. And, of course, that's all the 1930s. Then we have the war itself, the outbreak of war in United States policy of immigration, and... Um, and uh, attempts at immigration to the United States by Jewish refugees and the, the, how the State Department and Breckenridge Long does everything they can to prevent it. The American people are still isolationist. Roosevelt is somewhere in between. Um, there are uh, stories of, of American heroes, people like Varian Fry, who assists Jewish refugees in escaping France. Um, and they go into that story. So there are some bright spots on the horizon as well. People like Varian Fry. Um, and uh, who who do things like that, getting Jews out of Nazi-occupied France or Vichy France from the southern France and crossing the border illegally into Spain and getting them across the Atlantic. And then, of course, you have Pearl Harbor and the United States joining the war. Um, news of the final solution arriving in the country and how the story of the final solution reaches America, reaches the American newspapers. It gets into the role of Stephen Wise, as a leader of the American Jewish community. And here, it's an interesting thing, and here I would have a bit of a critique on this documentary, is that, number one, it doesn't at all, almost not at all, it mentions the Rabbi's March that was organized by Peter Bergson, which they mention as well, and, and the, the, his, Peter Bergson's organization, and how they create the Rabbi's March, and has some great footage from the Rabbi's March on Washington in, uh, in, in 1943, at the end of 19, in the fall of 1943, right before Yom Kippur, actually. Um, but it does not get into the Orthodox rescue efforts, it doesn't mention the Vat Hatzal, it doesn't mention any Orthodox Jewish leaders, and 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 it also put, puts it casts Stephen Wise in pretty much a positive light, which disturbed me a bit because I happen to know that he did not do you know he was in, in in awe of Roosevelt. He would not push him to do more. He was not that proactive in rescue efforts, um, even though he was outspoken at times and he did organize rescue efforts at times but it's definitely a lot of critique on Stephen Wise and there could have been more uh, more spoken about that on the documentary instead it left the, the viewer with kind of like this yeah he was engaged in rescue efforts when no one else was and it makes him like this almost like a hero trying to do uh, trying to do as much as he can which I felt like was not the full picture that I would have of Stephen Wise, and especially in his relationship relationship with Orthodox uh, uh, rescue activists or the Bergson group, 
um, which was not orthodox, but they definitely did do lots of rescue, or at least attempted to do lots of rescue. Um, so that would be a critique I would have on this uh, documentary. And of course, it's, you're allowed to have critique. And more nuance would have been would have been in place, and also more of the story, more of the story of of American Jewish organizations doing rescue, more about the joint, more about the Orthodox, more about um, these organizations that actually did a lot of rescue work. Um, it gets into the whole story of the Roosevelt administration, the State Department. Eleanor Roosevelt comes up quite often as she was seems to be, have been much more active and involved in rescue and pro-accepting Jewish refugees and immigration and breaking quotas than either her husband or the State Department. Um, they talk about the whole idea of military victory as the priority. Um, the, the critical of Roosevelt's Jewish advisors who, uh, who advised him not to, uh, not to engage in rescue and not to meet with the rabbis by the rabbis march. And then it talks about a very important story, the Treasury Department and how the Treasury Department headed by Henry Morgenthau um, and, how, and how they eventually formed the War Refugee Board and the whole story of John Pele. And, and as the head of the War Refugee, they bring footage of interviews with Pele himself as head of the War Refugee Board, and how much the War Refugee was able to save at the end of the war, and their war, and especially with Hungarian Jewry, and the relationship that the War Refugee Board has with Raoul Wallenberg, who is a Swedish diplomat slash spy, but he's really an agent of the Americans, and he's funded by the Americans, both by the Joint itself and by the War Refugee Board, by the federal government, and Karl Lutz, other diplomats in Budapest towards the end of the war, and the story of the War Refugee Board and people like Henry Morgan. Oh, and it's interesting they pointed out, I think I might have seen it once, but I didn't remember that, that Henry Morgenthau's father was the United States ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. And Henry Morgenthau Jr. lived as a child, a teenager with his family in the Ottoman Empire during World War I. And his father had seen the Armenian Genocide. And, and cabled back to the State Department about it. And therefore, Henry Morgenthau Jr., besides for being a Jew, um, a German Jew, an assimilated Jew, but a Jew nonetheless, um, he also had seen the earlier genocide uh, that had taken place and that the world had done nothing. And he kind of like vowed to himself that if he would have the opportunity, he would never let that nothing happen. He would be you know, make sure that something is done. And that's a motivation. I don't think I knew that before. That was a motivation for Henry Morgenthau to get more involved and have the Treasury Department be the only uh, agency in the United States government that did anything. And they're in charge of the War Refugee Board. And John Pele is the great uh, head of that who, who organizes as much funding and illegal funding even, uh, you know, um, to, to try to save as many Jews as possible at the end of the war. Um, and uh, and then it goes through the analysis of the regarding the bombing of Auschwitz, which was I'm happy the way they treated it because I feel like that that is a bit of a futile discussion. I don't think uh, you know from the available evidence that we have. Of course, the problem with 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 the story of the potential bombing of Auschwitz is it's all speculation because the bombing of Auschwitz did not happen. So we can only speculate had it happened, what would have happened. So if had they bombed the rails to Auschwitz and nothing would have happened, they wouldn't have stopped anything because the evidence shows that uh, the Nazis were able to fix railways 
um, you know, within a day. It was they were able to fix it usually within a day or two. Um, pinpoint bombing was impossible. They didn't even have forward bases until they got to northern Italy towards the end of the war. Um, so the, the idea that they could have stopped the Holocaust by bombing the rails is, I think, a moot point. They could have bombed the camp itself, which probably wouldn't have hit the gas chambers. It probably would have hit the barracks and, and killed lots of Jews. I don't know how good, much good that would have done. And, uh, and I think the documentary treated it well. It did say that it would have shown, it would have been a symbol, it would have given a chizik kind of like, yes, the American government cares about us, the American military cares about us, it's sending a strong message to the Nazis, we know what you're doing here, and it could have done that, which I guess is something. Um, so they did try to present all sides of the issue, I think they did a fair job with it, they even presented the side of pro-bombing Auschwitz, but they, they, uh, they, they definitely... It seemed like they agreed with me that it would not have been, you know, the, the American government could have done a lot more as far as immigration is concerned. I don't think they could have done much more as far as the bombing of Auschwitz is concerned. But this is a very emotional topic people get very excited about, and I've gotten lots of hate mail in the past from listeners who haven't liked it when I said it. So, you know, go ahead. <laughs> I'm ready for it this time as well. Um, it also talks about the end of the war, liberation, and how the news reaches the United States. It talks about American soldiers confronting uh, what happens by liberating the camps and liberating Buchenwald and Mauthaus and other place, the DP camps. And it also has a very important critique of American government policy after the war. The fact that the American Congress did not change the quotas even post-war. And, it's, and you're like wondering, hey... You know about the Holocaust now. You know what happened. You've seen it all. You've heard it all. You know about the final solution. And now there's a few survivors in DP camps. You, you still can't let them in? And the answer is yes. The State Department still would not relax its policies until a few years later. And then they did all of a sudden allow them in. Um, and so they, to their credit, eventually they were able to, to get there. In late 40s, uh, they were able to, to get, you know, they relaxed the quotas somewhat and allowed survivors in. But for a few years after the war, they still did not change it. Um, they brought it out very powerfully about relatives of Polish Jews, this, this family they followed from Bolochov in Poland, and uh, and how they found out after the war that the relatives that they were unable to get out um, were all killed. And, uh, and, and, and this uh, grandchild of these uh, relatives, he, he related how his father kept... Uh, the last letter he received from his brother in Bolochov in his pocket for the rest of his life. And he lived with this guilt, this terrible guilt, this letter from his brother saying, please help us get out. And his father tried everything he could and was not able to get his brother and his family out. And he carried that letter with him for the rest of his life, never got, never recovered from it, never recovered from that guilt. And so uh, that, that's a, you know, that was a very powerful thing. Um, it's six hours of material, so this review is not at all comprehensive. It's just summarizing the main points of the narrative. Um, I would add one or two last things. Um, they had a great, great angle with the Anne Frank story. Anne Frank, of course, is probably the most famous Holocaust victim. And what they bring out here is that Otto Frank, Anne Frank's father, tried to get to the United States. So the whole Anne Frank story could have been had a much happier ending had the American immigration policy been different. Um, and they're using that, obviously, as a metaphor. How many thousands, 
maybe tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, obviously not all six million. Uh, the American immigration policy would not have ended the Holocaust, it would not have prevented the Holocaust, but at least some lives could have been saved. And they bring it out very, very well with this whole angle on Otto Frank about how he actually applied to the State Department. He went to the American embassy, he got a sponsor, he filed the papers, but it just wasn't in time, it wasn't enough, it was not the quotas, he wasn't able to get in, and therefore... Uh, we all know the ending of the Frank family story. They also had some great interviews with historians like um, like uh, Timothy Snyder, uh, Deborah uh, Lipstadt, uh, some of these very, very prominent historians who articulate it very well, explain it very well, and they're, of course, fantastic, and they don't need my haskama. So there are some great stories there. Um, I felt overall it was pretty good, well done. There is the critique that I mentioned about... Um, both about Roosevelt and the American people. In other words, he shifted the blame more to the American people and the American Congress and the State Department, less on Roosevelt himself. And we have to you know, figure out how accurate that is. And there's the other point that I mentioned about Stephen Wise and the Orthodox um, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, the, and, and that story. So that was the whole story, or most of the story, of the U.S. and the Holocaust. Um, and it's an important story and should be talked about and researched further. So I hope this piqued your interest. This is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudi.yehudigeber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.